success after success for the Nazi blitzkrieg that stormed into Poland on September 1, 1939, and then swept across Europe, and hardly any time at all they had most of the continent. It was tough going for the British. They were, in the early days of the war, expecting an invasion at any time. In fact, it's not really fully understood why Hitler did not. There's only guesses made at that. But things were going very badly until finally the British won a significant battle in North Africa. And the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, briefed the nation on what happened and said, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. And so it was. There was a lot of the war left. There was much to be done. When I look at the book of Acts, what we've been studying these past 12 weeks, I see a description of the end of the beginning. It's an account <clears throat> that God left <coughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> to see how the early church entered into the mission of God. Jesus came on a mission, and he was completely successful in what he was sent to do. But there's more to be done. And so he sent out his disciples, particularly his apostles, to press on and to continue the mission and to proclaim liberty to the captives and wholeness to the hurting, freedom for those who are enslaved, and pardon for those who are guilty, which includes all of us. And so this mission is described in the book of Acts. But when we come to the end of the book of Acts, it's not, it's not the end. And it's not the beginning of the end, but rather it's the end of the beginning. And so as we take this one last day, we're going we're to cover the last eight chapters, actually, of the book. It focuses on the Apostle Paul. Of course, there are others that were important. But the writer of Acts was one of Paul's traveling companions. So he took, takes a look at him in particular, particularly here in the latter part of the book. Acts 21 to 28 opens with Paul heading for Jerusalem. Prophetic people warn him of trouble ahead, but he presses on. He presses on in the midst of known trouble, which is given to him prophetically. Paul meets with James, who's the main leader in Jerusalem at that time, the brother of Jesus, who tells him that there's a rumor circulating that Paul was instructing Jewish believers not to circumcise their children or obey the law. Actually, Paul didn't forbid it. It wasn't a true, it wasn't a true report. He had merely said it was not necessarily, not necessary. Paul contended that it was by faith obtaining grace. That was the key. The key was not in obeying the law. In fact, no one could obey the law well enough. But he did not, he did not forbid people from circumcision or from obeying the law. His point was it's not necessary. But the report went out that he's just saying, throw it all out. And that was, that was the trouble. 
James advises Paul to demonstrate his respect for the law by participating in, in some elements of the vow of a Nazarite. And Paul does it. He demonstrates his respect. He's in the temple area when some Jews from Asia, probably from Ephesus, broadcast fake news and stir up the crowd. That he's, he's there breaking the law. They got the crowd so incensed that they, they wanted to beat Paul to death, and they started. This caused quite a commotion, quite an uproar. The Romans, who were set up at that time, that they could see, they could see pretty well what was going on in that area, <clears throat> they sent soldiers down to, to uh, break it up. The Romans rescued him, rescued Paul. Now Paul, who just barely escaped with his life just then, he sees this as an opportunity for preaching. He motions to the crowd, and, and he gives them his testimony. He talks about his background as a zealous Jew, opposing Christians, and he talks about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus in some detail. And he talks about what, happens after, what happened afterward. But Paul hits a trigger when it comes to the part where God told him he would send him to the Gentiles. The crowd was very upset at the thought that God would send a Jew to preach good news to Gentiles. And they start making a fuss again, such a fuss, that the Romans get Paul out of there and decide, we're going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to examine Paul by flogging. Basically, that's torturing somebody to get the truth out of them. They're getting him ready. They're stretching him out for this flogging. But Paul prevents this by appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen. It was not legal to do such a thing to a Roman citizen uncondemned. So the Romans ended up commanding the Jewish leaders to gather so the Roman tribune could determine the root cause of all his trouble. Paul could see that this group of Jewish leaders were both Pharisees and Sadducees who had certain doctrinal differences between them. And he purposely creates a, creates a controversy to prevent these religious authorities from ganging up on him. He gets them distracted and they start arguing among themselves. And it, it, it works so well that the Romans become afraid that Paul's going to get torn apart by all these angry partisans and they haul Paul away. And then this happens. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That morning, a bunch of Jews hatched an assassination plot against Paul with the help of the chief priests. It involved over 40 assassins who took a vow. We're not going to eat or drink till this man is dead. However, as they were plotting, Paul's nephew happened over here, and news of the plot was leaked to the Roman tribune by Paul's nephew. The plot was foiled by a massive security force. What the Roman tribune did was he sent Paul out of the city with a security escort of 200 soldiers, 
70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, a real show of force that probably was around half of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem at that time. He did not want this controversial prisoner assassinated on his watch. And so he had him escorted under the cover of darkness with significant security detail. The plot was thwarted, and Paul is escorted to the governor's place. There, the governor invites Paul's accusers to come and give their side of the story. The Jewish leaders arrive with a prosecuting attorney who lays out his case. And then Paul makes his defense, which I'll summarize. I was acting like a good Jew. Let those present testify otherwise if they can. which they were unable to do. That governor, Felix, who was not very well respected, basically stalls with Paul for over two years. And as a favor to the Jews, he leaves Paul in prison as he's succeeded by the new governor, Festus. Festus goes to Jerusalem and talks to the Jewish leaders. Now this time it's the chief priests who are going to try to revive the assassination plot. But Festus doesn't go along. So the Jews go to Caesarea to accuse Paul again. Festus, trying to curry favor with the Jews, offers Paul a trial in Jerusalem. Paul refuses and appeals to Caesar, which means going to Rome, which is just what Jesus told him a little over two years earlier. At that time, a fairly devout Jew by the name of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive and meet with Festus. Festus describes Paul's situation, and King Agrippa wants to hear Paul himself. Festus opens the meeting by stating his reasons for calling it, and then Paul begins his defense. He talks about, now remember, he's, he's speaking to a, a devout Jew, and he's going to make a a play for his soul. He's going to go fishing for this man's soul. He starts out by talking about that he had an excellent record as a Jew. Paul says he realized the hope of the Jews had been fulfilled. And that's why he's on trial. He describes his conversion experience in some detail, this time quoting more extensively from Jesus. And he describes his post-conversion obedience to the vision he had and preaches the gospel to Agrippa, which I'll read from Acts 26, starting with verse 22. Speaking to Agrippa, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to both, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Festus interrupts at this point, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul replies to Festus and returns his attention to King Agrippa. 
But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He's fishing for his soul. And King Agrippa knows it. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul agrees. And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We don't know how it ended. Paul sails for Rome with Luke, the writer of this book, and other companions under the, control of, under the control of a Roman centurion named Julius. It was getting late in the year. And Paul says this, based on his experience in the water, having been, ship, been shipwrecked more than once prior to this. He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But Julius disregards him. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, that is the captain, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And so they took a chance, and even though it was late in the year and risky, they made a break for it. But were caught by a terrible storm. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who set with you, who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. God was watching over his mission. He was not going to let his foolish, foolish decision thwart his purposes. He told Paul he was going to get to Rome and to Rome he was going to go. And a stupid decision would not prevent it. God was very interested in accomplishing his purposes and seeing his will done. And he was not going to let his mission be thwarted at this point. After 14 days, the sailors suspected that they were about to run aground on rocks. So they attempt to escape in the lifeboat, the boat that they used to ferry people to shore. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That was it. There was no getting off that ship anymore. Now they decide this is a guy worth paying attention to. 
They do run aground on a reef, and the centurion saves Paul from the soldiers. They were intending on killing all the prisoners. See, in those days, it was common for soldiers, for anybody who, who were uh, guarding prisoners, if the prisoner got away, you die. A lot of motivation. So the soldiers were like, we'll just kill them now, and then they can't escape. But the centurion stops them because of, because of his regard for Paul. All of them make it safely to land, an island called Malta. And then interesting events happen to Paul. He's involved in gathering wood for a fire, and a very poisonous viper bites him. The locals know that that's fatal. And they thought that justice was going to kill him, even though he, he survived the shipwreck. See, they had a worldview that indicated, and, and had actually a tradition that someone who survives a shipwreck and is bitten by a snake, it's because justice is not going to allow him to live. Even though he escaped the shipwreck, he's not going to escape justice. And that was their worldview. But nothing bad happened to Paul. And their world undergoes a paradigm shift. It shifts. And they said, he must be a god. That was their only option that they had in their worldview. Paul heals the father of the chief of the island who had dysentery. And after that, he heals others with, with diseases. And they send him forth. And that everyone leaves with, with provisions from the island. Finally, Paul arrives at Rome. He calls together the local leaders of the Jews and gives a brief introduction of why he was sent to Rome. He tells them that he did nothing against Jews or Jewish customs. Yet he was delivered to Rome as a prisoner. He said he was being acquitted, but the Jews objected and he had to appeal to Caesar. So he has, and Paul said that he has no charge against the Jews and he is here because of the hope of Israel. The Jewish leaders are intrigued and they want to hear more. So they set up a meeting and invite more Jewish leaders. And many attend to hear from Paul. And he customizes his message to try to convince them from the Law of Moses and the Prophets. These were Jewish leaders. They'd be very familiar with the Law of Moses and the Prophets. And so he uses that as the basis for his persuasion to these people. And this was the result. I'm reading from Acts 28, starting with verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we come to the end of the beginning of the mission. As the book of Acts concludes, that mission would continue on 
through fierce Roman persecution over the next few centuries, through doctrinal battles over what exactly the gospel is and who is Jesus exactly. It made it through the onslaught of Islam, which was primarily conquering through military conquest. The mission made it through the loss of the concept of grace through faith, or a serious deterioration in that concept. We celebrate kind of a turnaround in that area. Just recently, on October 31st, that's considered the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg. His intent wasn't to start a whole new branch of Christianity, but rather to bring a correction, a mid-course correction, because the mission had gotten confused. And there were some that were saying, it's really, you got, you got to do things. You got to do things. You got, if, if, you wanna, if you want things to go better with you, you got to pay for indulgences. And I won't, I won't get into some of the errors that had crept up. But all it was was a mid-course correction. And instead it spawned the third great branch of Christianity, Protestants. You have the Roman Catholics, you have the Orthodox, and you have the Protestants. Now there's many blessings that came with, with uh, Protestantism, but we splinter so easily, we're, we're really not good at hanging together like the other groups are. But there have been blessings. So, that loss of the concept of it's all by grace, it's all by faith, grace obtained through faith, that was regained at that time, and the mission continued. And so it comes down to us centuries later. And the mission still isn't done. When the mission is done, God's going to wrap it all up here. When it's all finished. So we, we, we still have a mission to do. And I would like to uh, pray a prayer now that was written by Paul during his time in Rome to empower us to continue with this mission. I'm going to read from Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. One of my all-time favorite prayers, to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, Jesus operated by doing what he saw the Father doing and saying what he heard the Father saying. He was totally committed to following God's will. And the early church, they were committed to that also. And here Paul is praying for this church at Colossae to be filled with the knowledge of his will so that they could do the same and continue in this mission. And we're going to pray that. Why would he pray that? Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Isn't that a great goal? To live a life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? I have to remember, it's all, it's all still grace. It's all still by faith. But yet there's still, there's still work to be done. And there's a manner to be walked. And our goal ought to be to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. 
Wouldn't that be wonderful? Not wasting, not wasting your time, not wasting your life, but living an eternally significant life. You and I were designed to live eternally significant lives. We were made for that. We were made for that. And not just to make it up as we go along, but God gives us a plan. He lets us know His will. So we know how to best do that. How to live a life that, that is eternally significant and not wasted. And not just trying to spend our days in comfort and security. Praying prayers, oh, bless me, bless me, bless me. Protect me, protect me. Give to me, give to me, give to me. There's more, there's more to life than that. And, and those are good prayers. Don't get me wrong. The psalmist prays those kind of prayers all the time. But, there, but there's more to it. You and I have been given a mission and a plan to accomplish that mission so that we bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, getting to know Him better. We have the high and distinct privilege of the Creator of the universe inviting us to know Him. And Paul continues in his prayer, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, if you wonder, why, do you, why is he praying for all this power, for all endurance and patience with joy? Well, if you read the book of Acts, you find out that you need it. Those people needed it, and we need it just as badly. Because there is still all kinds of trouble. There is still all kinds of opposition. And perhaps you've encountered some, or know somebody who has, or know about another part in the world where the opposition is significant. There are still impediments to the mission, still those who try to thwart it, even by killing the messenger. And then a final exhortation. This is something Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We covered his visit there a few weeks ago. The end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we can rest assured when we're pursuing and doing the Father's will that our work isn't in vain. You're not wasting your time or energy or money when you're engaging in this mission. For it's the greatest mission that ever was and ever will be. This is our opportunity to live out the mission that God gives to you and to you and I, to you and me. In a real sense, we're like special ops. And there's people all around us who need rescuing. The guilty need to be pardoned. The slaves need to be set free, the slaves to sin. And who does God give that mission to? Us. And so in a real sense, we're, we're sent out as special ops, and we, we, we don't want to be asleep for this. We just don't want to do our own thing and just, and just live our, our uh, pleasant lives. But we ought to get on, 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 on our part of the mission. Now, our part of the mission at times is a, little, is a series of mini-missions. See if you can rescue this person. See if you can rescue that group. While there's still time, 
Once you cross the river and you're with Jesus and you've passed through death, that, I mean, you're done. You're done. That's it. This is your opportunity and my opportunity. This is our only opportunity to participate in this mission. This is it. None of us know how long this is going to go. Churchill didn't know at that time. And we don't know now. But I'll tell you one thing. Looking at the book of Acts as the end of the beginning, we're getting closer to the end. In fact, Jesus talked about some signs that were supposed to happen first. This is the beginning. The beginning of the end. Well, we may be very close to the end of the end. But in any case, for each one of us, the end comes. Even if the end doesn't come for a hundred years and none of us are left, except maybe Lucy if she lives a long time. She's just a few months old. She's got a chance. But like I'm toast if it goes another hundred years. This is our opportunity. This is our one opportunity to participate in this great and glorious mission. We call those veterans in World War II as part of the greatest generation. And indeed, they did a wonderful thing for the free world. But what we proclaim, well, what our mission is, what our job is, so much higher than that. We proclaim freedom that lasts for eternity. We proclaim a forgiveness of all wrongdoing. That men and women don't have to pay for what they've done wrong or what they've said wrong or what they've thought wrong. And so our mission is to go out like special ops and rescue. We've been commissioned for a rescue mission for many people. And so let's be... steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Amen. Please rise. Lord, as we wrap up this series called The Mission, Help us, Lord. Fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of you. Holy Spirit, may you strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to ensure in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come upon us and to fill us for this mission, this mission that you've given to us. Lord, we pray for boldness, a holy boldness and courage 
to live lives worthy of Your name. To bear fruit in every good work. Help us, Lord. You've sent us forth and we ask for a greater measure of power to go as we go forth. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, keep this spark alive in our chests. Keep a fire in our hearts. Lord, when we're flagging zeal, blow holy oxygen upon the fire. Keep the fire burning, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.